0: Welcome to Quarantine Seminary with Brother Isom. Hey, everyone, welcome back. In this episode, we'll be talking about Alma three. So far, the Book of Alma has already been pretty contentious. The new government is only in its fifth year of existence. Alma, who is the high priest of the church and the chief judge of the government, has had to make some real difficult calls. Nihor, the head of a competing religious movement, was executed, but his movement has outlived him. Those who followed Nihor took the path of priestcraft. Though they preached a universal salvation, they believed in an unequal society, placing teachers and priests above others and eventually trying to raise a king, Amlici. Even though enough people rejected Amlici and his vision to once again reshape Nephite society, his followers weren't content with their defeat. There was something about how they saw themselves and how they saw their fellow Nephites that enabled them to resort to violence. They felt justified, perhaps because of their ethnic divisions, to force their vision of the world on their fellow Nephites in the same way that Nehor forced his vision of the world on Gideon. Well, the Amlicite rebellion was partially defeated. I say partially because the surviving Amlicites have united with the Lamanites, and like the Amulonites, Remember, these are the descendants of the priests of Noah and the Lamanite women they forced themselves upon. The Amlicites will not be passive participants in Lamanite society. They will be agents of violence. In fact, most of the violence that we'll see in the book of Alma isn't really Nephite versus Lamanite violence. It's Nephite versus Nephite dissenters manipulating Lamanites for their own purposes. We aren't quite ready to set aside the Amlicites. Mormon lingers on the situation through chapter 3. So let's see what more he has for us at the beginning of Alma 3, verses 1-3. through I ended the last episode by talking about how heartbreaking the Amlicite rebellion is. Mormon has a lot of ground to cover, but he pauses to talk about the open wounds left in Nephite society. When the survivors of the war return home, many of their worlds are shattered. He tells us many women and children had been slain with the sword and also many of their flocks and their herds and also many of their fields of grain were destroyed for they were trodden down by the hosts of men. We get the privilege of reading on past this suffering, but these people couldn't just read on. They had to live in the cost of war with all of its reminders. We can't read these stories without taking time, slowing down long enough to at least imagine what their pain must have been like. We have to catch ourselves from saying, well, here we go, just another war. I mean, is there a more painful sentence than, now the number of the slain were not numbered because of the greatness of their number? Going on to verses 4 through 19. These are some tricky verses. It's one of those places in Scripture that reminds us that every reader of Scripture is an interpreter of Scripture. Nobody simply reads Scripture as it is, and I would be suspicious of anybody who claims that they do. The authors of Scripture largely wrote in a different time, language, and culture than what is familiar to us. One thing that we should remember is that we don't need to be perfect readers of Scripture to be good readers of Scripture. In fact assuming that we are perfect readers of scripture will take us a long way down the road of being bad readers so let's start off by acknowledging our imperfection but being intrepid explorers of the word of god we won't let that imperfection rob us of our curiosity or our willingness to edit previous understandings whether they are our own or our parents in other words out of love of god we are willing to repent of our previous understandings if, in fact, they merit repentance. So let's get into this tricky set of verses. Mormon tells us, And the Amalekites were distinguished from the Nephites, for they had marked themselves with red in their foreheads after the manner of the Lamanites. Nevertheless, they had not shorn their foreheads after the manner of the Lamanites. Now the heads of the Lamanites were shorn, and they were naked, save it were skin which was girded about their loins. And also their armor, which was girded about them, and their bows, and their arrows, and their stones, and their slings, and so forth. In these verses, Mormon is clearly addressing the appearance of both the Amlicites and the Lamanites. The Lamanites have marked their foreheads with red in a distinctive way from the Nephites. The Amlicites join the Lamanites in marking their foreheads, but they don't cut their hair in the same style. The Lamanites were also dressed differently than the Nephites, armored differently, and so forth. There's a very practical reason for discussing the appearance of these two groups. If you're going into battle, you want to know who's on the other side. The question is, having begun this section by speaking about the differences of appearance, does Mormon continue talking about appearance? Here's what he says in verses 6 through 10 in full, and then we'll go to work interpreting. And the skins of the Lamanites were dark, according to the mark which was set upon their fathers which was a curse upon them because of their transgression and their rebellion against their brethren, who consisted of Nephi, Jacob, Joseph, and Sam, who were just and holy men. And their brethren sought to destroy them, therefore they were cursed. And the Lord God set a mark upon them, yea, upon Laman and Lemuel, and also the sons of Ishmael and the Ishmaelitish women. And this was done that their seed might be distinguished from the seed of their brethren, that thereby the Lord God might preserve his people that they might not mix and believe in correct traditions which would prove their destruction. And it came to pass that whosoever did mingle his seed with that of the Lamanites did bring the same curse upon his seed. Therefore, whosoever suffered himself to be led away by the Lamanites was called under that head, and there was a mark set upon him. End quote. The question that we will ask and we will not be able to answer is what Mormon means by the word skin. Clearly, Mormon began this section by talking about appearance, but is he still talking about appearance? Now, immediately you might say, well, of course he's talking about appearance. What else could skin mean? Let's look at the options. The first option, and it's only the first because it's the traditional understanding, is that Mormon is saying that God cursed the Lamanites because of their wickedness with darker skin than the Nephites. This understanding has made its way into popular depictions of the Book of Mormon, the Nephites portrayed as white and the Lamanites portrayed as brown. Another option is that skin is a symbolic reference reflecting a view of civilization or purity. This isn't that hard to get our minds around. Sociologist Armin Moss, who actually died this weekend and was a founding member and a mentor of Mormon studies, points out that we don't think twice when someone is called thin-skinned or thick-skinned. It has nothing to do with skin. It's a metaphor. In the same way skin could have been a metaphor, in the same way skin could have been a Nephite metaphor for cultural, ethnic, or religious purity. A third option is that it isn't all a literal reference to pigmentation or a metaphor, but some combination of the two. In other words, It's possible that over time, genetic traits or marriage with non-Lehite groups actually produced observable differences between Nephite and Lamanites, but that those differences played into the Nephite view of the Lamanites. Finally, and this is one that I've been favoring lately, it could be that whatever the difference in pigment or the belief of the Nephites that the authors of the Book of Mormon emphasized this division because they saw our day. Remember that the Lord says on a number of occasions that he's preserving records to reveal the sins of people to a later people as a prophetic warning. Perhaps the authors of the Book of Mormon know their audience enough, and they are telling the Nephite story in a way that makes a relevant point to the readers in the last days. This isn't a comprehensive list, just some options to choose from as we're interpreting this issue in the Book of Mormon. But one thing you might be asking throughout all of this discussion is, why is it so important that we know what the people of the Book of Mormon look like? It might not have been important. Race didn't have to be such an important consideration. But for centuries, Western Europeans and their descendants in the United States among other places, insisted that it was the most important consideration. And, like it or not, we aren't living in a post-racial society, and we have made choices over decades of how we portray the people of the Book of Mormon, and those choices have mattered. So, whether it needed to be important or not, it is important. Particularly when we consider that from 1852 to 1978 and beyond, some of the most prominent justifications for the priesthood and temple ban on those of African descent associated dark skin with a divine curse. In the church's race and the priesthood essay, those justifications are directly addressed. And I quote, today, the church disavows the theories advanced in the past that black skin is a sign of divine disfavor or curse, or that it reflects unrighteous actions in a premortal life that mixed race marriages are a sin, or that blacks or people of any other race or ethnicity are inferior in any way to anyone else. Church leaders today unequivocally condemn all racism, past and present, in any form. We might not be able to offer a determinative answer to what Mormon intends skin to mean in the Book of Mormon, but it should be clear from the church's statement That it's time to repent from our traditional reading of this issue in the Book of Mormon and of Scripture in general. One more point on why we can't shy away from this issue. Nephi prophesied that at a future date, Western European Gentiles would colonize the Americas and carry the Bible with them. The Bible would be precious to these Gentiles, but these same Gentiles would be resistant to the Book of Mormon, saying, A Bible, a Bible, we have got a Bible, and there cannot be any more Bible. Nephi knows the Gentiles will respond this way to the Book of Mormon, because he's seen it in a vision. So to these future European Gentiles, he quotes the Lord, saying, O fools, they shall have a Bible, and it shall proceed forth from the Jews, mine ancient covenant people. And what thank they, the Jews, for the Bible, which they received from them? Yea, what did the Gentiles mean? Do they remember the travails and the labors and the pains of the Jews and their diligence unto me in bringing forth salvation unto the Gentiles? O ye Gentiles, have ye remembered the Jews, mine ancient covenant people? Nay, but ye have cursed them, and ye have hated them, and have not sought to recover them. But behold, I will return all these things upon your own heads, for I the Lord have not forgotten my people. Now I have literally had conversations where people have argued that we don't need any scripture except the Bible. And I see those conversations as a partial fulfillment of Nephi's vision. But there's something else here. The Lord through Nephi calls out these European Gentiles for not only forgetting the Jews for their precious Bible, but actually cursing and hating the Jews. One question that I've got a lot of mileage out of recently is, What was Nephi seeing in vision that made him say that? And I'm going to suggest that one of the things that Nephi is seeing is the almost universal portrayal of Jesus, the apostles, and the biblical prophets as white British men. Nephi is a Jew from Jerusalem, and he knows for a fact that Jews from the ancient Near East aren't white British guys. Now you might say, why does Jesus' skin color matter? Well, it might not have mattered. Except Western Europeans have spent the last 500 plus years saying that skin color matters more than anything. You can't say that and also worship a brown man. Knowing what we know about the skin color of people from the Near East, we can safely assume that the Nephites, Lamanites, and Jesus had brown skin. Jesus might have had skin dark enough to be considered black in today's America. He certainly had African ancestry, and according to some biblical accounts, even lived in Africa for a period during his formative years. The fact that saying these people were brown, or Jesus was brown, or portraying Jesus as brown is seen as a political statement, is evidence that Jesus's race matters to us. Just maybe not in a way that we'd like to admit. Western European Christianity has literally remade God in our own image. We haven't just forgotten that we received the scriptures from the ancient Near Eastern people. We have used those scriptures, Bible and Book of Mormon, to justify our racism for centuries. Nephi saw us in a vision, and the Lord spoke through Nephi to call us fools for our racism. Okay, so after that discussion, let's get back to the chapter. Mormon sees the Amlicites marking themselves with a red mark as a fulfillment of the Lord's words, where he says, I will set a mark upon them that mingleth his seed with thy brethren, that they may be cursed also. This is a common technique that Mormon uses throughout his writings. Pay attention. Whenever he sees what he thinks is a fulfillment of an earlier prophecy, he brings our attention to it. In verses 20 through 27, we learn that this particular conflict isn't over yet. Another Lamanite army attacks in the land of Minan. Alma doesn't lead the Nephite defense this time. Apparently, he was wounded at some point in the earlier battles. Regardless, the Nephites successfully drive the Lamanite armies out of the land, and Nephite society regains some semblance of stability. Mormon finishes this chapter by reminding us that all of what we've been discussing has taken place in the fifth year of the reign of the judges. He says, and in one year were thousands and tens of thousands of souls sent to the eternal worlds that they might reap their rewards according to their works, whether they were good or whether they were bad to reap eternal happiness or eternal misery, according to the spirit, which they listed to obey, whether it be a good spirit or a bad one. I spoke to this a little earlier, but there's a risk of steamrolling the lives of these people by just moving on with the story and forgetting that they were all left dealing with the fallout of a civil war. Civil war is a complete breakdown of the social contract. For example, the United States civil war was a moment when the constitution failed. That's not usually how we think about it because we still have the constitution, but the constitution that we have is one that had to be reanimated. My point here is that The fifth year was an incredibly disruptive period, and we should stay tuned to the changes that resulted from it. Thanks for listening. Quarantine Seminary is an independent podcast unaffiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. None of the views expressed here represent the official teaching or position of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our music today, as always, was provided by Dallin Isom. Be sure to check out his stuff at soundcloud.com be sure to subscribe to stay up to date on new content until next time I'm your host Mason Ison